Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. And the mission is twofold. It's to change who gets to be part of reporting, and then change what people are reading. So get people reading about inequality that might not have necessarily thought of it before. Digital technology has altered the traditional understanding of what a reporter is. The individual who reports the news can bring a different perspective to the story being told. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Alyssa Quart is a journalist and the author of five books. Her most recent book is Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. Alyssa is also the executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. EHRP is a nonprofit newsroom that funds and supports investigative journalism that tells stories that might otherwise be missed. Alyssa, welcome to It's All Journalism. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. It's great to be here. Well, you have a pretty impressive resume. You've been in a lot a lot of places, but also I see sort of a, a line through the things you're interested in writing about. Tell me a little about you know how you became a journalist. What got you into this profession? So yeah, I just contributed to this substack called Chills, which is Lauren Wolf. And I said to begin with, I was obsessed with other people and it was a better career path than being a voyeur, being a journalist. And it's like, how do you legitimately learn everything you ever want about other people and experience? You know, if you believe that, you know, what we have on earth is, is what there is. For me, journalism is the kind of, I guess it is a form of secular faith. Like, how do we know the world? We know it through our senses. We know it through talking to as many people as possible, understanding their experiences, their mindsets, and issues through individual experience and collective experience. So I think that for me, it was like profound curiosity in others. I found this like interview I did with a gym teacher when I was eight years old that was typed up and mimeographed, the dates being mimeographed. And, you know, I was terrible at gym. Maybe I was trying to get a handle on it by interviewing him, but that was, you know, in the beginning. Okay. That sounds like the reporter racket, like, completely exposed. Yeah, I've had thoughts like that as well. The idea that if we believe that we're, you know, this is it and we are who we are, it'd be a very lonely place if we didn't venture outside of our own heads and begin to try to understand other people's experiences from their point of view. And I think about this because, you know, I go out and I interview people as part of my job. And I think about this all the time. You know, people, when they get comfortable, will tell you just about anything. I'm just fascinated by how open people are and willing they are to sort of share their inner thoughts and their perspectives. I think when you get into like a sort of a more formalized interviewing, like where you're, you know, politicians who, who understand that what they say has consequences and so they're more guarded in what they say. But, you know, just talking to somebody on the street about their day-to-day life and, and what they think is important, it's constantly rewarding and surprising. So tell me about EHRP. How did you get involved in that? And what's kind of the focus? So I did a film with a filmmaker called Maisie Crow about the last clinic in Mississippi. And it was called The Last Clinic. And I wrote it and sort of produced it. And she's the director. She's a brilliant director. She actually went on to win an Emmy for the feature version of it called Jackson. It's all about the 
clinic that's in the center of the Dobbs decision. So we did that and we got support from Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which was this new nonprofit that had just been started by Barbara Ehrenreich. For our listeners, Barbara Ehrenreich is, I guess, if you're listening to It's All Journalism, you probably know who she is. <laughs> it's self-selecting, but she's like, to me, one of the, probably one of the greatest living journalists and a wit and a muckraker and all kinds of other stuff whose focus in her entire life has been on working class, labor, women's labor, et cetera. So she created this nonprofit after 2008, after the recession to support journalists, because also it wasn't just journalism was tanking, but lots of professions, as we know, and a lot of middle-class professions were really contracting and it was really hard to survive. And so she wanted not only be the rich that wrote about poverty, that was one of her wonderful efforts. And anyway, I got hooked up with it through doing this film. It was quite small. I took it over in 2014 and I built it up into quite a substantial nonprofit now. So I say sometimes that I co-founded the current incarnation. It was her baby initially. She said she's an incredible person. How would you describe the mission of what the, the project is doing? What is it you're trying to accomplish here? Well, yeah. So part of it is keeping people who are middle class and working class or like just not the most affluent elite reporters in the profession. So some of it's about supporting freelancers and independent reporters, photographers, filmmakers, illustrators, et cetera. But some of it's about getting that work into journalism. So we co-publish, and that was a decision I made at some point where I was just like, you know, co-publishing is the way it should be for a small nonprofit. Bigger nonprofits like a ProPublica or something that's like created themselves as a destination. But I felt like, look, this is a small nonprofit. The biggest effect is going to be if we can change all the existing sites and journalism entities that exist. And we do that by offering up a very polished set of drafts, films or photography, often by people who are non-traditional, like not from, you know, the IB and IB Plus universities, and give it to publications from the Washington Post to Cosmopolitan to Teen Vogue, et cetera. So that's sort of been the way I run this. Yeah. And the mission is twofold. It's to change who gets to be part of reporting and then change what people are reading. So get people reading about inequality that might not have necessarily thought of it before. So like if you're reading Esquire, you're reading Cosmo, you're not necessarily thinking, I'm going to read the story about poverty. And it's a sort of stealth, it's a stealth project in that way. Oh, okay. We'll try not to to break your cover, <laughs> cover on that. <laughs> yeah. But I like a couple of things you said. I like the fact that you're looking, you're creating something that's going to help fund reporters who are covering the types of, of stories that, you know, aren't going to get covered in traditional media. And I also like the idea of your view of how sort of stratified the different news sources are and how... You could imagine a, a homeless story is almost like a boutique story in some place where it's like this we're writing about this this serious thing, but the people that it's affecting or the or maybe the people whose uh, opinions we want to change aren't necessarily the primary audience for that publication. Yeah, so that's true. So that's part of why we try to get our stuff into. I, you know, I hear that people don't like this phrase "news deserts," but you know, get those stories into places that are not necessarily always either having this issue reported on locally or that sympathetic to people who experience homelessness, right? So like you might have voters who have been found through various surveys in certain kinds of geographies to not really have that much empathy for people who have experienced homelessness. So it seems really important to get the pieces in the, 
those local papers. We have a writer in Utah who's experienced homelessness. For instance, we've had, you know, reporters who've experienced homelessness in Alaska, you know, just like places that may be less likely to have citizens who are like, oh yeah, these people really need help and more likely like you can bootstrap it as it were. That's been part of the approach. And also, honestly, just having people who experienced homelessness who are also professional writers. So that's like threading a needle that's not everybody. You know, that's a small cadre of people who have professional reporters who've experienced homelessness. But like, honestly, it's growing. <laughs> you know, it's a tough profession. And so we've had, and I'm happy to share with you for your site, if you want, like some of the pieces that were stand out. One of our contributors was a vet who's experienced homelessness. And he actually dated while homeless, which is super interesting. And he's the centerpiece of our new radio show, which is going to be on Wisconsin Public Radio. Lori Yearwood, who's written for The Times about experiencing homelessness and had been at the Miami Herald. These are some of our contributors. Okay. And are you seeking out writers? Are people coming to you? Or are you picking topics and then trying to find something? Or are you looking for people to pitch you a, a story and a reporter? I mean, how does, how does that work? It's nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom. And by the way, our address is economichardship.org. And we have like an info address that's on the site. So if you want to contact us, you can, or you want to read some of our work. We've published hundreds of pieces a year. Yeah, we get submissions. We used to use Submittable. Now people just email us. I've reached out to people, as have my colleagues. Sometimes we'll see somebody who's writing in our area inventively or is themselves experienced poverty and writing first person stuff and may have not heard of us. So like, we'll reach out. Yeah, we're getting submissions. We take submissions, we read them all and respond. And I definitely try to, with my colleagues, place stuff, especially when it's from people who don't have networks. But if somebody is sort of an experienced freelancer that's doing reasonably well economically, we sort of ask them to try to find their own publisher, but we're still underwriting it. We're paying them well, pretty well given today's marketplace. And then they get whatever they get from where we co-publish on top. So it's like pretty nice. Yeah. And so we're open to pitches. All the stories are domestic and they all have to be around issues around inequality. But that's very broad to me. I mean, that can include television shows about debt or it could be reproductive rights, you know, because that intersects a lot with questions around poverty. It could be about taxes, you know, adoption, the cost of adoption. Like there are things that are around economic struggle that... You don't necessarily think, oh, gosh. But to me, that's the angle. Like if you're writing about a disability, the angle is going to be having trouble getting jobs because you have a vision impairment or having trouble paying for your kid who has autism spectrum disorder. Right. So that that would be the focus. So if you're coming to us with a story that doesn't seem like a clear inequality story, there's probably an inequality angle in it. And that's what we ask people to have. And it's you know, the perception that people have of people are homeless and how easy it is for them to sort of divorce themselves from it and that it's not, you know, somebody will take care of that. It's not, doesn't really sort of affect me, but these types of inequalities are everywhere and affect everything. And I think like what you're describing, I think that's a great way to, you know, maybe open some people's eyes and give them a different perspective. I know personally, I, I don't, I, when I have aha moments, it's usually because suddenly I, I'm seeing something from somebody else's perspective. For instance, for instance, Alex Miller, who's one of our writers, has experienced homelessness. It's exactly that. He was in college. A friend said, come to New York. I have a place for you to stay. The friend meant like a week. You know, Alex was 23 years old. 
and he wound, he wound up unhoused because like the guy was like okay the week's up and he's like wait I thought you were asking me here to and you could kind of see how it creeps up on you like it's not always oh yeah you're bracketed this fixed identity you've had some incredible incident that's led to this no this was just like you know he was young and didn't have resources and he's like in a shelter so I think that's important I say empathy is my metric but just to for people to see the humanity and also the sort of speed in which some of the stuff can happen to people and that no one's immune and I like what you said about land use because I think like that's another thing around our issues that they all intersect like we've been creating this radio show with uh, to the best of our knowledge which is a Wisconsin public radio show and we have three different hour episodes you know different themes but we realized that mental health and homelessness or lack of shelter and work they're all interconnected the themes keep coming up and you're like oh yeah so you, when you write it you know do write something or you do an audio piece about work you're always doing something also about housing and you're always doing something that's also about mental health and bodily health so these themes are connected i think one thing that happens in mainstream media is that a poverty story is like a very narrow thing it's just like a depressing you know like social realist like you know, turned over supermarket cart and a, you know, a guy, you know, or like someone in a hard hat who's now on the street. And it's sort of not, it doesn't get into these nuances or like the fact that many of the people who maybe experience homelessness have gone in and out of that, have been, been to college and are not, you know, it's like, it's not just one thing. Right. Exactly right. I remember like earlier this year, I was watching the local news and it was about a neighborhood in Washington, D.C., there were tents there. The residents wanted to get rid of the tents. And, and the reporter talked to the neighbors and then talked to the city and wrapped it up. And I looked at it and I thought, you know, well, what is the perspective of the people there on the street? Why are they on the street? Because maybe that's really the problem, that maybe the thing you should be focusing on is not getting these people out from under my, you know, my house or off of my sidewalk. But addressing some of the long-term issues that you know, make it easy for people to end up on the street and need to find some place to go. The idea of, you know, well, you know, I talk to the, the local government. It's their responsibility. I talk to the homeowners to hear their complaint. But, and then the next day, the reporter will move on to some other story. You know, I don't want to call it laziness, but it's just a, a lack of, of willingness to go that extra step and try to tell the bigger story. And some of this is structural. Like, you know, one way is to try to create these gripping stories that counter the typical narrative that we're talking about, the bootstrapping narrative or the, oh, shock, surprise, the person who wins some small time lottery and, you know, and then it's a feel good story. Like the one person who gets into the school did not just do those feel good stories either. But also some of it is about supporting reporters who would otherwise be unable to work and not seeing them like, okay, we're the 1% or 10% of surviving journalists. And they're just like, oh yeah, let the freelancers hang. I don't think people honestly think that, but they sort of may just not be considering freelancers and independent reporters' fate. Like what we've had to do, and this is kind of cool, is sometimes we have gotten people cold weather gear for reporters who could not afford it. We've replaced broken cameras. We paid someone in Target gift cards because they were unbanked and sent them to some like post office box we paid for a lawyer for a reporter who was injured in the protests in Portland. So that kind of stuff is like, I guess that's also part of being a nonpartisan nonprofit newsroom that's small. 
big enough to like be effective, but small enough to still do stuff like that, you know, <laughs> and without having like multiple lines of like bureaucracy. So we just say, oh, somebody says, I really, I really need a new computer. We've been able to then send it or somebody was taping themselves and we needed to send them a tape recorder, you know, a digital tape recorder. I mean, all that stuff feels good in some way. You're like, it's not just giving grants. It's like the material experience of being reporters being supported, you know. You're not necessarily like restructuring the world. You're providing aid strategically to people who are working on something that just need that little extra something to help them get by. Yeah. Uh, which is a real, real neat approach. Now, you wrote two s stories for the Washington Post. I guess opinion pieces, the Washington Post. I want to, want to touch on traumatic pregnancies are awful. Dobbs will make that so much worse. Tell me about that story. What inspired you to write it, and what, do, what did you feel you needed to write? I guess. Well, okay, we have another writer, and I should share this with you also, who was financially stressed slash lower income, who had a traumatic birth, and she wrote for Parents Magazine. So that's an exact great example. Courtney O'Neill, great example of what we can do. She wrote about something a lot of people relate to, giving birth, but how poorly mothers without money can be treated when they're giving birth, and how the trauma levels are much higher for them when they're giving birth, because it's in maybe hospitals without a lot of attentive nurses or just like people who look down on the patients, right? When I read that, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then getting it into Parents Magazine was a triumph because that's, again, not a place you'd expect to see necessarily an inequality or poverty story. But then when Dobbs came down, I'd done a lot of work on Repro myself, like as I said, produced these films and written around this and spent time at clinics and in Indiana and Mississippi and New York and and so I was thinking about that when this happened. I was like a lot of women, very upset. And I was just thinking about my pregnancy. I was like, it was really traumatic. I had hyperemesis. I vomited for <laughs> for like eight, seven, eight months. And I was like, this is going to be, all these women now are going to have no choice in the matter. They're going to have to stay pregnant, even if they don't want to be. And if they have, say, hyperemesis or gestational diabetes or any of these medical conditions, they're going to experience a lot of trauma because they'll have no control over their life choices or their bodies. And that is a class issue, too, because I think, again, I chose to have my daughter. I was so happy to have her. And I was sick, right? But if I was in a state and couldn't afford to go to another state to have a termination, I would have had that condition if I didn't want a kid. And I would have been super sick and it would have been just the worst. And so that that was a piece I thought was really necessary to get that voice out there for all the women. I think there's something like 17% of women who experience PTSD from a birth and pregnancy. Wow. When that court decision, the lead up to it and when it happened, initially it was this feel, okay, we, we got to get into our, our old lanes. This is how we represent both the sides. I actually got sent down to in front of the, the Supreme Court to take pictures and to talk to people who were protesting and I talked to people on oh you who'd know, you do that for I did for for patch actually they put it on their national desk it was interesting because I talked to a couple of people that made me think very differently I talked to a young woman who was her early 20s and of Asian extent whose mother when she came to the United States with her husband got pregnant and had to have an abortion because she she couldn't afford it and so the sign the, the young woman was carrying was my mother's abortion saved her life. And so I talked to her about that. And it was really an economic struggle issue, you know, an immigrant coming in. And it often is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, coming to America with no money, no support or 
you know, access to healthcare. And then I met another woman who had come from San Francisco who was very happy with the outcome of the court decision and with she was a group from California. And I asked her, because I'd just <laughs> spoken to the other woman, I said, well, now that you know, everybody, you know, except in very rare circumstances, everybody's going to have to carry these, these pregnancies to term. Are you willing to, you know, provide um, increased medical care or, you know, sort of uh, economic support for these children, these more children that are going to be out? And she was just like, well, I'm a fiscal conservative, so probably not. <laughs> then I asked her, what about access to uh, contraceptives? And she says, well, I, I never really even thought about that. Yeah. And I mean, the truth of the matter, and this is something from reporting on all these clinics and from the stats, you know, the typical person getting an abortion is already a mother and is lower income and it has attended some college. So there's all these things and is also in her first weeks of pregnancy. So I think this whole idea of like heartbeat bills and the way that at least statewide, a lot of the language around abortion rights has been utilized. I mean, it's first of all, it's it's an electrical charge. It's not a heart at that point. And also it's usually six weeks. So whatever it is, it's not even close to being like a recognizable fetus. <laughs> and I, I think that needs to be said over and over again. And we've definitely been trying to do this, like cover reproductive rights in places like Teen Vogue for young women, for young women without a lot of money about the experience. Also, we had a piece that was really great about young women who are choosing not to go to college in states that are have outlawed abortion rights, you know, that's something that is kind of, again, not a typical poverty story, but, it, you know, they were turning down scholarships. And that is then a story about economic struggle, turning down scholarships to schools in those states. In one sense, I like the opportunity for us to begin writing different types of stories. When things are so supercharged that they're sort of in two camps, it's, you know, maybe difficult to go after the nuance. But I think now we're kind of in this flux, this is my opinion, I don't know anything, but that maybe now is as we sort of say, well, what does this mean now? You know, who does this really affect? We'll find out that a majority of this country wants these rights. I mean, that's what they're finding out. <laughs> or and maybe they don't want them for themselves, but they want people to have. And that's important. I mean, this is, if we talk about freedom, this is a, a freedom, right? But getting back to our message at hand. And I think the other story was about a real bread and butter story for EHRP, which is about something called the administrative burden and the level of the time suck that happens to people when they try to get Medicaid and not Social Security, actually, which is interesting. That's actually the easiest thing to get. But SNAP and other benefits, it's usually people who are lower income and it's resources that affect lower income populations that are either state or federal that are the hardest to obtain and that they spend this kind of time tax to get the services they need. And it's something that uh, I reported, but our folks, the people who write for us, have written firsthand about their experiences, about being unable to get un unemployment money, about like just the layers of when you have a kid at home or two kids, and then you're trying to get unemployment for your dad. So these are the sort of lived granular issues that are not just, you know, a poverty story that's a depressing kind of street corner poverty story, but are ones that honestly affect a lot of people. Anyone who's not really wealthy to ha and has concierges <laughs> doing their, their taxes will recognize that there's an administrative burden for anybody who's, except the wealthiest, who can outsource or don't even need to participate in healthcare plans, right? 
where they'd have to submit paperwork. So I think part of what interests me is actually the ways that we can build solidarity around a common enemy, which is a common enemy, which is like mo most people experience administrative burden. Most people have to, and not just the poorest. And to talk about things like financial struggle and economic struggle and not just poverty, because we have a, and this was the topic of my last book, uh, Squeeze, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. We have a middle precariat, a precarious middle class that is almost parallel to our working poor in terms of unstable employment, you know, economic insecurity and overspending, especially now with inflation on things like college and medical care. So I think, I guess part of the, the things that we're looking for also in EHRP are stories that are universal to everybody except the rich. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I can, I can sympathize with the healthcare issue. I have two adult daughters who have autism and oh. trying to get them, you know, any type of support, everything is always a huge bureaucracy. You have to start at the bottom of the hill and, and climb your way up. They're better off than other, other people. And I can't imagine our economic situa situation was a little different, how, how much harder it would be. But anyway, Are they, have they been able to find employment and Yes and no. Some employment, they get some SSI, but that in and of itself is bare minimum of money from the government. And then it's sort of a balance between state services and you know federal services. And then a lot of the state services, it's almost the whim of the General Assembly. If a different party comes in and takes everything over, well, you know, we, they gave this amount of money to that program, this many slots for... Medicaid, we don't need to open up anymore for another few years. So it's nothing steady, nothing regular. It's just sort of a constant struggle to identify resources. So anyway. No, Michael, it sounds like maybe you should be an EHRP contributor. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. But no, these are the I, kind of stories, like, for instance, uh, Alicia Abbott, whose kid is ASD, that's Autism Spectrum Disorder, she wrote a piece for us a couple of years ago that was got into Curbed, which is a real estate vertical, about public space and green spaces for her kid who is can't speak or he can can't articulate. And that being in these parks were was a sort of normalizing, wonderful thing and having for people without a ton of resources, economic resources. To me, that's a great EHRP story because that even though they're middle class, her and her husband is what you're talking about. This is a great kind of close to universal experience to have this sort of space available to people with disabilities. Yeah. You know, it's a family story. It's, it's a parental, you know, we all have these challenges in various ways through the life of your children. As they get older, things change and then new challenges come up. So anyway, let's talk about your book. Like I said, I, I found the title is infinitely fascinating to me because I, I love the subject. It's not out yet. So it's out in March, okay. just FYI, it's but it's great to start talking about it. It's called Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves in the American Dream, which I've been told is a provocative subtitle. Although to me, it's sort of... I think it's positive. I think yeah. it's a positive thing. I do too, because I think we can liberate ourselves from this dream for not towards another one, towards a more real American dream, which is about you know, community and collective action and reconsidering some of these myths that hold us down and hold us back. These ideas that we're supposed to be doing everything on our own, that we're supposed to be achieving and that we're supposed to be having a very monetary in our orientation, that we're supposed to look up to people like Horatio Alger, who 
was actually a very unseemly man. I don't know how much you know about him, but he was a terrible man. And a lot of the people who are the sort of poster children of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, like Ayn Rand and Alger, were no distinctly unpleasant. And I think that it's no accident. I think it's a model of selfishness and sometimes even criminality that can be around that, that kind of individualism. Yeah, I think we've all been exposed to that a lot in the last, I don't know, six, seven years. Yes, exactly. No, I mean, I'm of that age. I'm, I'm a baby boomer. I'm a tail end of the baby boomers. And I tell you, I'm not a big fan of my generation at the moment and the way they're they're approaching their seniorhood or, or living their seniorhood. And to your point, I think a lot of it has to do with this, this dissatisfaction. I'm not where my father was. I have not achieved this that has supposedly was promised to me at some point. I'm angry about it. And I talk to my wife about this a lot, this idea that the pie is only so big. If I'm getting a smaller piece, that means other people are eating part of my pie. And nobody's, nobody's come up with actually how big the pie is. It could be gigantic. Or that there's other kinds of pie. Maybe. Exactly right. <laughs> and that one of the pies, you know, for instance, like some of these pies could be emotional, you know, or right. I mean... Solidarity. It can be love, it can be, yeah, yeah or solidarity or, or like they can, or, and it could be actual assistance to one another, like mutual right. aid or, or workers' co ops, but it can also be rethinking these myths and freeing ourselves from them and the, liber the liberation that can come from that. And that's an internal thing, like asking ourselves, you know, what went into making us who we are, who helped us get where we are, almost like I don't like the word gratitude, but like a kind of koan of those things and then you'll recognize that it took a village is a terrible phrase but the sentiment is fantastic and it absolutely accurate and i think anybody who's self-made should call their mother <laughs> and then they'll realize that they're not really self-made and call their first grade teacher and their colleagues we like to deny the communities that make us and the privileges that make us as well in this country but i think that it can actually be comforting you're like, oh, yeah, I, I am a product of a field of people. It makes you feel less alone. Haven't you ever felt like you're feeling down and then you've helped somebody and you actually feel better? I mean, even if some of it is like about feeling more in control. I mean, right. Helping somebody makes you feel like you have authority and control and you're not lost. Or you, it gives you a compass. There's a self-serving element, I guess I'm trying to say, even in helping people. And that's good. That's something that we should be really looking at, like how much better you feel when you take care of somebody else. That's been my experience. It, it's kind of disheartening when you, when you see people actively like trying to shame people for helping others or for supporting something that will benefit people that isn't necessarily going to benefit them. You know, going back to Horatio Alger and Ayn Rand, you know, this idea that, well, there should be no charity. And that's, you know, working from the, um, the standpoint that you think, you know, we all started at the same starting line that we all have the same privileges and access. And we know that's not true. And so the game is rigged from the beginning. And so that to argue that, well, they just need to try harder is a complete lack of empathy and efforts, emotional or intellectual, to try to understand what they're doing or who they are. And you can see, I mean, the people who are most passionate, the politicians about being self-made, often come from immense wealth. I'm not naming names here, but... And there is absolutely nothing self-made about them. And so I think it's also the falseness of it really bothers me as a, as a reporter, just the, the claim of the people who are most heartily embracing this ideology are those who've been completely recipients of the care and luxury and 
hundreds of years of capital and power of their forefathers. You know what I mean? You know, including Horatio Alger to some extent, right? His father was a minister. He was a minister before he got involved in a scandal, which my book will get into. But yeah, he was definitely privileged. So was Emerson, who would preach self-reliance. And he, you know, was his first wife who died was very wealthy. And he actually sued her family to get money to pay for a lot of the transcendentalists. And I think we need to see that this is like a self-reliance that has, you know, a platform, you know, it's self-reliance that's been, uh, has a cushion, you know. Actually even goes back to what we were discussing at the very beginning about this sort of stratification of, you know, the different media levels. So there's some people who went to, you know, who went to Columbia who did, you know, who have a certain view of poverty and, and struggle that's very different than the people that they're writing about. And I have to say, I went to these places. And so as, as a, no, but this is the thing, like, I feel like I feel a little ashamed <laughs> sometimes. And, and I want, and I want to, and I want to, I want to use that access that I had. And I think that's to stop erasing the experience of working class Americans and to give voice to this new generation of storytellers with the ultimate end of diversifying the media. Yeah. The other thing I would say to that, though, is that it's important that the people who are in that space are given the opportunity to do it. Then we sort of fall into we're the saviors, where we need to be allies or, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, friends. And not translators. Also, you know, and mediators. Although, you know, sometimes I think, and this is a project I've been working on, it's called Working Sources. And I, I don't think I mentioned this to you, but we're creating... Um, a database of experts that are non-traditional. It's almost completed around different issues from labor to drugs, to economics, to daycare, to care, that it's a daycare operator rather than somebody at Brookings, you know, who's like a child expert or something. The whole idea with that is to be able to get the folks who went to Columbia and are the majority of the people, honestly, who are in management. There was a study done in management at these major publications went to these schools, right? But to get them experts that are not their go-tos. Let's stop calling the hospital administrator and let's call the RN. Let's stop t- calling the cop for a drug story. Let's call the former drug misuser who's a, a counselor now, right? Like the people who are closer to the ground and give them the expert status. They're not just the ordinary schmo quote, right? Which we all know that quote in the piece. They're also the expert quote. Yeah, this has been great, Alyssa. Say your say your website again. Sure, it's economichardship.org. I'm Alyssa Court. I'm the executive director of it, and I hope you guys read it. Okay, excellent. Thanks for being on the podcast. Okay, thank you so much. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. 
Camillo Brust help with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.